0: Hello, and welcome to episode 144 of AvTalk, our annual end-of-the-year look back at some of our favorite guests and stories. I am Ian Pechnik. not here with Jason Rabinowitz this week. He has the week off. We talked to so many interesting people this year, some for the first time and some recurring guests, that it was difficult to whittle it down to just a few. But we've done the hard work, and I think we've got a great wrap-up of the, the variety of people that we talked to this year and people with some very interesting and exciting stories. We've chosen three of our favorite interviews from 2021, and to kick it off, we head south way south, all the way to Antarctica, for a conversation with Sven Lidström of the Norwegian Polar Institute, who explained how the blue ice runway at Troll Research Station is operated and maintained.
1: I'd love to know a bit about the physical infrastructure there. What is the runway like? How was the construction done to build such a thing in such an inhospitable place? Take us through the aspects of what that runway is like and how it was originally built.
2: Yeah, so it is on blue ice. It's located uh, about 250 kilometers from the coast, 1,250 meters approximately. And It was built by uh, preparing the ice using like a laser cutter to cut down or even out the glacier ice just to smooth it out. And then uh, that job took about two years to prepare it. And then what we do through the season is just we prepare it by grinding up the ice to get a thin layer of ice chips and snow on top of it. And that's creating the friction on the runway. And if we wanted to, I mean, we could have the runway five kilometers or 10 if we wanted to but three is enough it takes quite a lot of work to keeping it up you know in good conditions through the summer and it's on it's on a glacier ice i mean it's moving as well the runway is moving every year so we're looking at for the next couple of years to start to straighten it out because it's not moving evenly so that's the thing if you look at a picture of it now it actually have a little bend in it and we have this problem it's on ice so i mean with the higher temperatures we're seeing we're struggling to keep it cold (laughs) enough during the summer period. It wasn't an issue, wow, but for I... years, you know, when it's above freezing, we can't have aircraft land at it. So we're putting
1: a lot of effort into keeping the ice cold. Wow, that's crazy. And I know some airports, the physical runway doesn't move, but every now and then airports have to renumber the runways as the magnetic poles shift ever so slightly. But in this case, the ice runway is actually shifting is what you're saying.
2: That's correct. And it's not moving evenly either. It's like, a bit of a shift in the way it moves. It's not a straight movement. It's like a twisting force on it. So uh, given the fact
0: that the runway is moving, it sounds like the you sometimes need to to reconfigure the runway. But what happens if there's like a just like a hole in the ice? How do you repair an ice runway to let an aircraft land on it?
2: Oh, good question. Yeah. So yeah, we do get the holes and the cracks and like you could do in normalize and we have a procedure that's been developed through the years where you, you go out and find the cracks. You have a mixture of ice chips, snow, and cold water, about a third of each. And you go out and it's like cement. You just pour it in and then even it out. So that's a job that we do continuously through the summer as the runway moves.
0: So it's, it's kind of like a skating rink.
2: Correct, correct. Very much like a, like a skating rink. Another problem but- seeing lately as well is that with the higher temperatures, we have... Um, sand blowing off from the mountains. And you know, when that end up on the ice, it starts melting and creating small holes and it gathers in, in pools of sand that melts into it. So what you would think is sand on a runway is good, but, but not in an Antarctic runway. That's actually a big issue for us to keep it clean, not to get any debris on the runway.
0: That's really interesting because, yeah, you, you would think that the sand would be you know, creating friction, but no, it's just melting the ice and, and that's not very good.
2: No, correct. So how
0: is the runway maintained, not aside from the physical runway, how do you keep the snow off and prepare? Because you mentioned that you're creating kind of a, like a, a snow and, and ice chip mixture on top of the runway to create the friction. How is that done?
2: So we use a tiller. Uh, very much what you see in the back of, of uh, the piston bullies or track vehicles that maintain the ski slopes, very similar, or actually the same in a way, uh, just maybe a bit longer. But it just grinds up the runway and it creates these ice chips. And if you let it uh, rest for a day or two, so it, it's like mixing with the ice, that's creating the, the very good friction. And to keep the temperature down on the, on the ice, to keep it cold enough, we actually move snow on top of it to insulate the ice it doesn't melt the last couple of years it's been so warm so even though we're far from the coast we've seen melting on the glacier i mean we're we had physical melting melt pools like water on the ice and if we'd had that on the runway it would be a huge issue so that's why we like move snow on top of it and it's on blue ice so it's not like you see in Antarctica otherwise there's a lot of snow so it's actually blue ice it's a blue ice area so it's one of these areas where there's no snow normally.
0: So how far is the snow from the blue ice and how far are you moving the snow?
2: So now once we started building the runway and we we'll get these barriers on the side, so we get some snow there and it, of course it snows and we try to keep that close to it as much as we can so we can blow it on. Otherwise, we have snow up on the Nunatak, which is a mountain that sticks up the ice and that's where our station is located. So that's about uh, seven kilometers from the runway. Or if we go further out on the glacier or the ice sheet, maybe 15, 20 kilometers, you start seeing more and more snow.
0: So let's shift to the actual operation of the airfield. What happens maybe a week before you're going to receive an aircraft?
2: Okay. Yeah. So, uh, We start preparing the runway. So in this season, we we started removing snow that we put on top of the ice to keep it cold during the the summer. So we start blowing that away. Actually, we use the same machines used in an airport. Anywhere in the world, we have issues with snow. It's the same type. We use the same type to blow the snow on top of that runway to keep it cold. And then once we have a flight, we remove it. And we start with that about uh, two weeks prior to the flight. One week Prior, we start grinding it or going over with these piston bullets with, uh, or Everest that we use with a tiller on the back that just creates these ice chips on top of it. And then we let it sit for uh, two to three days before the flight. And if there are any repairs that we need to do, this I mentioned or you mentioned that we get these holes. We need to do that. We stopped doing that about two weeks prior to the flight. So it's enough time for it to to freeze and we can check that the repair is good enough. And then about five days prior to the flight, our weather forecasters that we use that is actually, uh, they're German, normally based at the German station. They start doing the weather forecast for the flight. And for the last flight we had, they came up with a very narrow weather window. So we actually moved the flight forward. 24 hours to get in before a big storm. So at the moment, they're going through a quite big storm down there. And when we're talking storms, I mean, we recorded 98 meters per second winds. So that's like three times a hurricane.
0: So the airfield is ready. You've got your, your layer of ice chips and snow that are going to provide friction on the blue ice runway. The weather is clear. The aircraft is inbound from Cape Town. What is everyone doing to get ready for the flight to land?
2: Okay. So, uh, yeah. So then our, our chef and science, Dick, and so on, they actually go in. We have a fire truck, or for this flight, they required us to have two. So we rebuilt a, a track vehicle, a Heglens track vehicle. So we had two fire trucks. And they go out and are one hour prior to the flight, they're at the airfield. We have an ambulance, also a Hegeland's vehicle. And the doctor went out in that. This time around, it was the electrician who was the the airfield tower, and he goes out about an hour or two hours prior to the flight and checks the runway, checks everything is in order. Last year, we actually had a a couple of birds fighting on the runway. So right before the flight, we had (laughs) the birds.
0: uh, It's just like any other airport.
2: Uh, Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then we start bringing the passengers out this year because they wanted to see the flight. They were out there about uh, half an hour prior to the flight. the aircraft comes in lands there's a lot of people taking photos uh of course or filming or, or you know it's a big thing and then it's like any other airport only that it's we don't have that many flights to to practice for so it's a big thing for everyone to get involved in this so
1: just out of curiosity, you mentioned that there are firefighting trucks there for for the arrival of this aircraft. What are these fire trucks doing the rest of the time? Because they looked like pretty standard airport firefighting trucks that you would see at any other airport. Is this just generally used there? Or are these special pieces of equipment just for the sporadic flights that actually do come in?
2: It was bought in for the sporadic flights, but we use it on station as well. So we have, we have some roads. So they, they do fire prevention and fire protection on station but mainly it's for our flight operations. And it's a very standard fire truck. Our training we do in Svalbard, and we do it on a very similar type of truck. So they get very familiar with operating the same truck that we use down at Troll.
1: I find that particularly interesting that although these are such exceptional circumstances, such an odd thing to have a passenger aircraft land somewhere as exotic as a troll research station on Blue Ice Runway, there are still normal aspects. Like there's a normal aircraft firefighting truck and there's some sort of air traffic control tower I guess what I'm interested in also is what is in that air traffic control tower, if you could call it a tower, I guess. Do they have radar? Are they just talking to the aircraft via radio? How do they know that the aircraft is coming or where it is?
2: Okay. Uh, good question. You would be a bit disappointed. So uh, <laughs> the, the tower the airfield, it's, it's a regular Toyota, and we, we have this urban VHF in that, and they can connect to a weather station out of the airfield. Most of the flight following is done from station. That's from our ordinary ops room, so where we do all, all our operations down there. There's no radar. Um, we do tracking. We have an ADS-B installation or connected to flight radar. So we track the flights all around. We have satellite phones, VHF, HF, remote controlled cameras, and so on, but it's not very similar to what you would expect in a normal tower. And that also puts a lot of pressure on the pilots flying in. We, don't, we have a GPS approach. If needed to, but we we don't allow planes to come in when the weather is bad. We always look for good weather windows for our flight operations. So the
0: aircraft comes in, and you're doing the normal stuff, so cargo loading and and passengers are loading and things like that. The two questions that we've gotten the most on social media have been about fuel and how that works. How do you fuel an aircraft there, and how that all works, and then what is the Terminal building, like where do you put passengers? Does everyone have to stay in the station and then just kind of wander around, or is there like an actual troll research station terminal?
2: Oh, of course we have a terminal building, but you would be a bit disappointed when you see it. It's it's a container, <laughs> but it's a it's a weather haven met container. So we actually can expand it to about three times the size, and we've had. When we have people coming through Troll that fly onto other stations, our chef normally comes out. Last time we had uh, some British scientists come through. They they arranged tea and scones for them. And if people are staying for a longer period of time, we can set up tents so we can bring them into station. But for this flat, we just expanded this container. And people were sitting in there. We have heat in it. We actually have Wi-Fi. We didn't have for this flat because we didn't set it up. But we could connect to Wi-Fi over satellite. There's no tax free not yet. <laughs> but, it's uh, so far
1: sounding like a lot of Ryanair or Allegiant Air airports and that it's just some sort of bin out in a random airport.
2: Wow, I was hoping you would say this is something very special, but yeah, it's probably <laughs> it, we don't have a VIP lounge yet. We're not VIP people I think either. Not yet. But it's it's pretty
0: basic. <laughs> you get your own tent.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> priority boarding. Somebody must yeah. have it there. Every yeah. flight has priority boarding.
2: Yeah, that's when I go on board. Uh, <laughs> our toilet is very basic as well. It looks nice from the outside, but it is, it's two drums, two empty drums. We use so it's not too fancy. And then, so how does the fueling work? Oh, the fueling. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Uh, so for this last flight, they didn't fuel at all, and that's also a big benefit for us because fuel price in an hour case is, is ridiculous. The price per drum, per two liter drum of Jet A1 is 1,200 euros. So we also look for aircraft that do not use as much fuel or as little as possible. But we have a container, a fueling container that's built to specs and we have pressure fueling like any other airport. And then we could fill this fuel container to 16,000 liters of fuel. And then we could just pressure fuel any the aircraft if needed. We've had C like C-130s we had down. couple of years ago and they required a lot more fuel and then we actually had to pump from drums but we can adjust the fueling facility to pump straight out of drums into the aircraft it just
1: takes a lot longer so in this case the Iceland air 767 probably didn't need all that much servicing was there anything that it did require down at troll that it could not bring on for its own round trip
2: no they brought everything the crew was actually more busy taking photos out there (laughs) than than doing anything else, so which is normally the case as well. No, it's a big thing for the crew as well to fly down, but yeah, everything was prepared well in advance, so they didn't require anything from us.
0: I mean, that's really interesting to me that that you, and it makes perfect sense because I was just running kind of, you said 1200 euros for a, a 200 liter drum, which is roughly four to six times the cost of fuel that you would find not on antarctica but that leads me to my question how do you get the fuel from But where does the fuel come from
2: yeah so we we actually bring the fuel all the way from denmark we have a (laughs) that departs denmark and then it goes down it normally passes through cape town and we've had prior or earlier seasons we bought fuel through cape town we did run into some problems with a lot of uh contamination in the fuel which is not a good thing for aviation. So we just started buying it in drums from Denmark. And it's shipped down. It takes about a month for the ship to come down. It offloads the fuel on the coast or on the, on the ice shelf. And we bring it to station in, in tractor traverses. So long uh, trip for the fuel to get there. How long
0: does it take to get from the ship and, and the ice shelf to the station?
2: So normally, we would calculate about a round trip is, is a week. It's all weather dependent. Sometimes it goes a lot quicker. Sometimes it takes a bit longer, but we calculate about a week per trip. So from station down to the shelf and back.
0: So with the summer season coming to a close and and most everyone gone, are there any changes to the airfield during the winter? Is it just kind of kept in stasis or is it kept ready to use? and, And if you're using it, how, well, it's dark there. So how does
2: that work? Oh, yeah. Uh, so we kind of put it to rest, but it's uh, if needed to, we have been bringing aircraft in during the winter to get people out that are sick. It would take them out about a week or two weeks, just depending on the amount of snow and the weather, to get it ready. And if they need to fly in midwinter, we do have lights for the runway and, and poppies and you know, set up for it. But that's not something we plan for. The weather in Antarctica during the winter is quite hostile, and it is dark. So you don't want to have
1: to use those
2: things. No, correct.
1: Right? But we are those it. lights? Are those lights wired into the ice runway, or do you bring those out as necessary? Since you don't use those very often, we bring them out as necessary.
2: As I mentioned wow. before, the big problem for us with the moving runways—anything we place there—you know—we have to remount it ever so often. Also, the cold climate and the UV radiation during the summer takes its toll on any equipment we leave out. I want to go back to
0: the moving runway thing, because that's just fascinating <laughs> to me. How much is it moving a year? I mean, like Jason mentioned, we've seen regular airports have to rename their runways you know, from 27 to 28 or, or something like that. But how much is the runway moving
2: every year?
1: And we didn't uh, ask, does this runway
2: have a number? Oh, is yeah. It we, well, it does have a number. And that's another thing, actually, with runways in the polar regions. It's if you refer to north or red north. But we do have our runway, and it's uh, runway zero seven or zero nine, and runway two five or two seven. Luckily, it's kind of moving in the same way. We get this little bend, and it's about a couple of meters per year, actually. Quite. Uh, okay. I'm sorry. Did Nobody you say has... a couple
0: of meters?
2: Ah, uh, correct.
0: <laughs> I was thinking like a few centimeters here, a few centimeters there. A couple of meters per year—that's incredible.
2: Yeah, it's not the normal runway, as it. Yeah.
0: One of the questions that we got on social media was about de-icing. We answered that question via Twitter, but I, I thought we could talk about it a little bit more in, in depth here because you had mentioned that there, there's no de-icing and, and there's no de-icing fluid used, and that's for environmental reasons. But you also mentioned that you don't really need it.
2: No, it's extremely dry down there. So we don't see that issue. I think I've seen it once, and then we used, used heaters or blowers and, and brooms. And that was on on a flight that stayed uh, the three nights we saw that. And they also took off during the night or in the evening to go back. But otherwise, it's it's not an issue we see or encounter.
0: Is there anything special that happens with the airfield once the aircraft leaves? Or is it just, okay, they're gone, everybody back to work?
2: Well, we go through the airfield and, and check what it looks like. And we put it to rest until the next flight. But it's pretty much just go back to normal work.
0: So when is the airfield open? Because I know we're we always talk about the summer season, but it's not really it's not like a full six months, six months on, six months off, is it? Is it's more kind of more condensed.
2: Yeah, correct. So normally we we open it in, in October, November. And then we've had flights into mid to late March. But a normal season would be between early November till right about now when we flew home. So mid to late February.
0: And then when does the airfield – you said it takes about two weeks to start getting the airfield prepared. Do they do anything prior to that for kind of the first first flight in the end of October, beginning of November? Does the ship go down first to make sure that there's fuel there and all of those things? Or is it just kind of we can start bringing people in and then those people go collect everything from the ship that's come down?
2: Yeah, correct. So our winter overs uh, that we have on station, we all train them, prepare them, so they can open the airfield for us. We do flights coming in already in November, and our ship comes in around Christmas and New Year's or mid-January. So our season starts. The ship comes in is probably about halfway through the season.
0: So one of the questions that we got from social media, and and this is something that I hadn't even considered at all: Are there passport or security checks before people That's
2: get on the plane?
1: Question. That's a great question.
2: It is a good question. And honestly, nobody cares when you come down there because it's this wild west. But the <laughs> <laughs> when you go back, so we do passport checks and we've had issues with people forgetting their passports. And it's not a much problem for us down there because we're all very friendly, but it's coming back to, to normal life, showing up in Cape Town or in Oslo without a passport. So we do passport checks prior to departing. But everybody's welcome if they come down and we don't check your passport on the way down. But most people want to stamp the passport with a station stamp, so they show it voluntarily.
0: I think that's absolutely wild that you can just show up in Antarctica. So if I just kind of wandered over and said, "Hey, how you doing?" it would be just like, "Come on in."
2: Most likely, yeah. <laughs> it's it's Jason, a very Let's go.
1: Yeah, Get the it's BBJ a very friendly ready let's head down. There. Community down there.
2: So
0: I would assume that it has to be kind of that way because you only have so many people, and, and there's, I mean, just even thinking through the airfield operations, there's so much that could go wrong, and I, I guess that the the community down there kind of has to be just yeah we'll pitch in and. Do whatever needs to be done. I mean, you mentioned the electrician was operating the air traffic control tower. You had a plumber doing opera. I mean, I think that I think I heard the cook mentioned a couple times too.
1: Yeah.
2: yeah, the cook was in charge of the uh, the fire truck. So,
0: <laughs> I mean, with all of this going on, is there kind of a rotation, or do you know beforehand? I've been hired because I have chef experience. I'm going to go to Erica. But also, when I get there, at what point do you tell the cook that
1: he's going to be driving a fire truck? Is there like a chore wheel that you spin <laughs> and you're like, up? Oh, you're on air traffic control duty today? No, so we do train all the wintering staff to be able to do all
2: different aspects of maintenance and running the runway. And then normally they come in and they say, well, I really like doing the tower or I really like doing the fire truck we train them and they have we rotate them through so they've tried at least one or two, well at least two or three of the different tasks that they are forced so one thing is if there is a flight mid it would be because there is an incident and one or two people would be decommissioned so they must be able to to handle all aspects of bringing a flight in
0: yeah i can see how how that would absolutely be necessary during the summer i assume there's a lot of a lot more activity than just coming down with one flight, a few flights with personnel and things like that to your station. Having one of the larger runways in Antarctica must make Troll Station a uh, kind of a a hub for other researchers, no?
2: Normally, yeah, we would take people from other countries coming through. This season was very different. Trying to keep COVID out of Antarctica, pretty much every country was funding for themselves this year. This year, we did not allow anybody outside uh, our program, or had been through our um, quarantine and testing procedure, they were not allowed to visit station this year. But a normal season, we would have people from other stations come through, and we could also bring them in on our flights, and they would then continue uh, to their station with a smaller aircraft.
1: So there are actually cases where there are intra-Antarctic flights taking off from the Troll Research Station? (laughs)
2: Yeah, correct. So we've had that happen a couple of times that people come through and we they stay on station and then, you know, they fly back to Cape Town or they come in from from Cape Town or wherever and
1: then they would fly out to their station. Definitely the world's most out-of-the-way connecting airport, but I want to do that one day. So if a flight
0: is coming in that isn't for your station, who's in charge of the bill? I mean oh, is that yeah. kind of a, the contracting station, or do you is that like a cost that's built into your budget or or how's that work
2: okay, so we don't allow any aircraft to come in that's not approved for us, and we only allow aircraft that has uh you know a mission to support scientific program down there or a national sponsored arctic research program and then we also put a lot of demands on the operator of an aircraft coming in or on experience what type of aircraft and things like that we often get requests for different people to fly in or to use trawlers to go over and then that's not possible so our funding comes from the government to run the, the airfield and it's only to allow scientific research on the continent so for our scientists and for other countries scientists that come down
0: What's the most common aircraft that you see during the year on, on kind of the, the intra-Antarctic flights? In a normal year, obviously.
2: Uh, the intra is the Basler. It's very common, uh, the DC-3. And the- oh,
0: okay. So the, the turbo-converted the DC-3. Right. Those, those have to be... I've never flown in a Basler, but I can only imagine what an upgraded DC-3 feels like.
2: <laughs> oh, it's, it's the coolest ever. It's a really cool aircraft. And they're actually, you know, when you see them... You know, they're modernized. So they're, they look old and they feel old, but they're quite modern. So it's like being in an Indiana Jones movie flying around in <laughs> Another very used aircraft is the Twin Otter, flies everywhere as well. It's pretty much just those two. Years ago, the Russians used AN2s, which is a biplane. Oh, an wow. AN2? Oh,
1: that the way would up be amazing. In
2: That's yeah. insane. <laughs> That's a pretty cool aircraft. It's the only time I've been flying backwards, actually. Oh, they had to too strong so we couldn't make it yeah
0: what's the largest yeah. aircraft that you've seen down there ah, the 767 the, the is pretty big
2: yeah that's the largest one we've had and i think it's the largest one in our part of the continent i know the americans and the australians they use to see 17 as well but yeah the 767 is probably the largest what's the largest
0: you could
2: support honestly i don't know well whatever can land on three kilometers of runway i think
0: it's a length, not a strength issue. So
2: we did have some work study the strength of the ice. And that depends on the temperature of the ice quite a bit. So when the ice is too warm, we, we cannot take the heavy aircraft. But like now in February, and you know, if it's just cold enough, that's, the strength is very good. Uh, I know the Americans had the C-5, I believe. And that was on, during the winter, they land on, on the sea ice. I would guess we could take it as well, if we wanted to, yeah. The problem would be to refuel
1: it. Yeah. yeah it would it would have to bring in its own fuel. Definitely yeah. a case, probably more than anything else, of you can land down there once, but taking off is is a whole other right, probably right. not yeah. gonna happen scenario. This has been a fascinating conversation and I am so
0: glad that you were able to join us for this and, and we could get a, a good look at what's happening in Antarctica. And hopefully the Folks listening to this special episode of the podcast, go check out the Flight Raider 24 blog because we'll have a companion piece up there with a lot of photos that Sven has taken over the past few years that kind of explain a lot of the the visuals that we've talked about in this particular episode. So, Sven, thank you so much for joining us today to to talk about it. And thank you so much for being so gracious and sharing both your time and your photographic work so we could kind of really show people a very, very different side of aviation. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Sven Lidström. the operations manager at the Troll Research Station down in Antarctica for the Norwegian Polar Institute. He is now on the other side of the planet, up in Tromsø, Norway, and hopefully enjoying a reacclimation to non-Antarctic life. Thank you so much again. Thanks. In April, we talked with Sean Payne, an NTSB investigator in the Vehicle Recorder Division, about how the crash-protected recorders, commonly known as black boxes, work, and what the NTSB does when it's called to investigate an accident. I want to start with, I guess, how do you come to, to work for the NTSB?
3: Sure. So that, that's a great question, and it's it's something that you know everyone asks. Like, oh, you work with black boxes. How y- unique is that? How do you, how do you, how do you find yourself in this position? And I kind of serendipitously found myself here. When I was been in aviation my whole life. Became a pilot in the early two thousands. Graduated from college with a mechanical engineering degree, and specialization in uh, aerospace engineering. Was looking for a job out of college. I ultimately did flight tests for the Navy and kind of accidentally found myself in the recorder's world of NAVAIR, the Naval Air Warfare Center, which does all the flight testing for the U.S. Navy. basically was in a program where I had to choose a rotation as a junior employee, and uh, I was reading a Navy newspaper, and I came across an article about a, a deployable flight recorder that had floated across the sea, the Pacific Ocean, from a an ejection of an F-18 off the coast of Japan, but wound up on a beach in Hawaii. read an article about how, how this recorder was recovered and what lab it was sent to. And since I was in this program, I basically called the number that was for the reward on the black box, the same as the surfer that had found it in Hawaii. And I got the chief of the lab there at the Navy. And um, that's how I started working with flight recorders. Did that for a little while. And by way of the accident investigation community found my way working with the NTSB a few times, waited for a job posting to show up on USA Jobs. If you have ever navigated that system, you'll know what I'm talking about and apply. So um, I've been working with the NTSB for eight years now in the vehicle recorders lab, and I do all things electronic and data recovery.
1: Well, that's definitely not the most orthodox or standard way to find yourself in a career, but it certainly worked out for you, didn't it?
3: Yeah, I, you know, since I love flying, I love transportation in general. The lab, we work with all modes of transportation that the NTSB investigates. So I really get to touch everything. I, I really love working here.
0: So, when we're talking about vehicle recorders, listeners to our podcast generally know exactly what we're talking about but walk us through as far as aviation goes, what recorders are we talking about what which ones are you working with specifically
3: sure so traditionally, you know when people think of crash investigation, they think of the black box, which we all know is is orange, and that's so we can find it but Actually, I spend most of my time just trying to get any source of data off off the vehicle. In this case, an airplane. If we're going to limit ourselves to aviation, so um, that could be a flight instrument display, a PFD, an MFD, an engine monitoring unit, or it could be a federally sanctioned crash protective recorder, such as a CVR or, or an FDR. And basically, the lab, the vehicle recorders division, anything that could possibly record data, whether it was meant to be read out for an accident investigation purpose or not, is is my responsibility to. Dig that data out, no matter how we can do it, and for lack of a better term, exploit it, so the other investigators can can you know glean something from it. So what what I thought we could do
0: is start at the very beginning and walk through how the NTSB investigates an aviation incident or, or accident, and, and kind of go from the minute you receive word that you're going sure. to be needed all the way through public board meeting here's the final report i know we're we're limiting ourselves to the amount of time that, that we can discuss i'm sure the the three of us could could go on for days but we'll we'll do our best to to, yeah. to keep things moving
3: so yeah, who, yeah there's a lot to talk about here
0: who yeah. says go something happens
3: you sure. Know, so a,
0: a plane crashes, and then what
3: happens? Sure. So we have a response operations center, and they're twenty four seven inside the NTSB headquarters, and they are constantly monitoring all sources of information, including traditional news media, Twitter, any way that we might get notified publicly by an accident, and also the official ways. As if you have an accident on the NTSB form, they are the receiving end of the so- of the of the phone call for an accident report. They are monitoring, let's say, the aviation situation. If there's an accident. They will start coordinating with agency management, a go team. The ROC, or say response operations center, we call them the ROC, they will generate a text message, which is sent out to all NTSB investigators of that mode. So um, I think specifically when, people, when I tell people I uh, work for NTSB, they go, oh, are you on the go team? For most aviation cases, I'm not on the go team. I actually go to the lab so we are notified based on our specialties as to, you know, who might make up this go team. For me on an aviation case, I would be, you know, basically put on standby to come to the lab and then we'll start talking about, okay, what's the situation with the aircraft? Did it even have a flight recorder to begin with a CVR and FDR? And what's the status of that on scene? The rock will then coordinate, you know, sending physical members of the NTSB to the accident site, as we know the, the, the go team and, uh, basically from there, I start coordinating with who's the investigator in charge, who are the boots on the ground, and how I can assist them in recovering the
1: recorder and
3: you know, ultimately getting it back to the lab's hands.
1: It's interesting. So while the go team is actually, you know, they're, they're dispatched, they get on the next flight or they have their own aircraft and they go out to the crash scene, you are actually scrambling to headquarters to even more immediately start doing whatever you can from where you are. Sure. Yeah. And
3: immediately is a good word. So the, as the go team is immediately launching, we're usually immediately looking through paperwork for that aircraft or any kind of documentation or records we can find. And with a CBR or specifically an FDR, one of the first things we'll start doing is looking in our library of past investigations for a data frame that's similar to the aircraft that had an accident. we have seen anything similar before that will give us kind of get, get maybe too much in the technical side, but you don't just plug in a flight recorder and download it. You have to have somewhat of a roadmap. So we'll start immediately looking for that roadmap to try and uh, you know, download the device should we have it in our possession.
1: So even before an investigator lands and gets to the the crash site, you may already know the entire history of the aircraft involved in that incident. Basically what incidents it may have had in the past, its operators, its configuration, all that stuff. So you you and anyone else doing a job like you, you've already done quite a bit of work before there are even boots on the ground. Sure. We'll start looking
3: at the paperwork from my perspective. So I'm just dealing with the recorders. We would have like an a systems guy or an operations investigator maybe start looking at more broad-based aircrafts history. What we're specifically interested in the lab is getting that data off the unit as fast as possible, and that includes like identifying maybe a aircraft that was close in serial number that we've seen before that may have a similar data frame to expedite you know getting that information off the flight recorder. So we'll be looking at we will be looking at you know the aircrafts airworthiness records too to see if it even had a recorder installed and maybe what type of recorder it was.
0: So the investigators on the GO team get to the aircraft and let's say they they find the flight data recorder, they find the CVR. What's the process for securing those and returning them to the lab? and And then how does that part work?
3: Sure. So, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's highly dependent on the situation. I think we could, we could have a whole episode about just finding it. As you said, you know, and here's a scenario where they've located it, right? So the, the, the immediate need there is to get it back to headquarters in a secure method and as fast as possible. And that's an, another place where the response operations center comes into play. And I think the best and most efficient example of that is if the FAA does provide us with an aircraft to launch the go team in the best case scenario, They can turn that recorder back around on the FAA jet and and bring it back to National Airport in in Virginia, at which point we'll go pick it up. What happens more often is our response operation center. Typically, they have been using uh, the Federal Air Marshal Service. Either an investigator from the NTSB will accompany it back, return on the next commercial flight coming back to D.C., If that's not possible and the NTSB member needs to or the NTSB uh, go team member needs to stay on the scene, we'll coordinate with the federal air marshal service. And basically an air marshal will shuttle it back to D.C. and either someone from our ROC will beat that person at the gate or myself as a specialist. I've done it on numerous occasions where I physically pick up the recorder.
0: I'm just trying to get a mental picture of this here. The, the FAA jet with, with the NTSB member, that makes perfect sense to me. The use of the federal air marshals is, is interesting to me, but I'm just trying to, to picture, is the air marshal just
3: sitting there with the recorder on his lap? So, <laughs> so I can't say I've ever been on the aircraft with them, but there, there have been a few photos caught of, of recorders being transported and, and they're, they're few and far between. But um. That the federal air marshal will, I'll say, accompany the item within his site at all times. Whether or not it's in another box and no one knows what's in that box could be one thing. Uh, that's more typically the case, but we, we have had recorders see, seen within National Airport. I'll, I'll say say that. So, um, to jump in real quick, Just it gets more complicated when we have a water recovery and that air marshal is then required to bring through a cooler of water through security. I was just and, going and to and ask that about on that on the plane. <laughs> yeah. So, um yeah
0: yeah I, we we've seen and recently some of the investigations that the NTSB has, NTSB has done where the recorders are are recovered in you know the aircraft has crashed into a, a wet area or a watery area, and the the recorder is recovered from water and is then put back into water. Can you explain why what's going on? like i I assume it's to help preserve kind of the conditions it was found in and then clean it at the lab, but how does that work?
3: Yeah, so the enemy of wet electronics is is corrosion, and what we're trying to do is inhibit that process from the get go. So I'm sure, out of all the listeners you have, there's going to be some chemists that could finally pick apart you know what I'm saying here and, and have in the past in other presentations I gave. But the best practice we do is to put deionized water in a cooler to facilitate you know. So number one, if, it, if it's if something's wet and it's staying wet, it's not exposed to air, and it's not uh, given the ability to corrode as quickly. Uh, similarly, if it's uh, taken from salt water, uh, we put it in fresh water because we want to get those salt crystals and, and minerals uh, off the electronic board should they be exposed, you know, the electronics themselves. So, yeah, it comes down to essentially, you know, the field investigators or the go team getting creative and you know selecting the cooler at the local Walmart and, you know, finding a place to uh, finding a way to seal that up so it's secure for, for, for transport and uh, get it back to us as long as it's wet. We don't really have an issue of how it's kept wet. I'll, I'll say that.
0: So the recorder arrives at the NTSB, you know, main facility. You've got either a, a dry recorder in a good, good state. It's been mangled and smashed to bits, and you're you have no idea if, if it's going to be recorded, or you've got yourself a cooler uh, and <laughs> you know full of water. What's the process for determining? The shape of the recorder and and how best to proceed to see if there's data and, and to be able to to download it to to be able to sure.
3: It. So I'll start by saying the number one thing we're, we're we're trying to do is preserve the data from you know accident accidental loss. So that takes priority over anything. So we have a number of different procedures we follow in order. You know, based on the condition of the recorder, and I'll, I'll kind of go through some of the some of the white some of the ways it might arrive. So. Um, and it's called an undamaged download in most situations, you can do a functional check on the device and ensure that applying power to it on our download rack, you know, won't cause any unforeseen short circuits that you might, you know, not be able to physically see damage wise. And we'll just proceed with, you know, a normal download as if we were the manufacturer or the operator. And, you know, we have electronics racks similar to what's installed in an aircraft and we provide power and, uh. We hook it to a computer, for example, and we pull out the raw data. So obviously an undamaged situation is, is the easiest to take care of. When you start going down into damage recoveries, you know, you've know you got a lot of different scenarios there. And I'll start by saying that the recorder is made up of a few parts. There's basically a, a, an acoustic locating beacon attached to what we call the crash survivable memory unit, say CSMU. Uh, What's inside that CSMU is the valuable data, so to speak. So there's, you know, a number of memory chips that are striped in such a way where the loss of one chip would not affect, you know, overall data loss and how much damage per those chips can occur kind of depends on the recorder. But in general, the rest of the recorder can be thrown away at that point. I shouldn't say thrown away, but it's not interesting to us at which case we'll then evaluate the memory chips inside the CSMU and determine how to best do that recovery. In the end, it often comes down to uh, using what we call golden chassis. So we have in the laboratory every Western-made flight recorder that we order from the manufacturers with, with one simple modification, and that's uh, basically a modification that turns off any further writing of data. So if we have, let's say, an FH2100, which is a popular L3 device, we have that in a golden chassis version. So um, if we have damaged CSMU, we'll extract the memory. You might have to solder a new cable onto that memory, do functional checks on that. But then we'll plug it into our golden chassis and basically pretend, you know, have the recorder pretend that, that nothing's ever happened to it in the first place and then proceed with a normal download. That's kind of an ideal scenario for a damage recovery. Um, Of course, you can imagine it's more complicated than that, but that's one way to do it. If it's damage even beyond that using a a golden chassis, you either work on previous knowledge we've gained on memory chip direct access and readout and then subsequent conversion, or we call the manufacturer for basically a roadmap of their internal memory as to how to read that out on a specialized reader and then convert that to flight data.
1: I'm assuming everything you look at at this point is a solid-state recorder. Do do you still see at all in any investigations? Uh, I guess magnetic tape recorders, or is that a thing of the past?
3: Yeah, I, I th- <laughs> we just did one two weeks ago, so they are they there. You are go. Still, they, they are still coming in. The FAA has not outlawed them. The FAA has said they are obsolete, but so long as you meet the minimum recording requirements, whether that be for a CVR or uh, 88 parameters for an FDR, you can still use magnetic tape recorder. So we still are seeing that. I wouldn't say we're so much seeing them in the United States, which we are a lot of times on older business jets, but also in the course of NTSB's assistance with uh, foreign governments uh, for their flight recorder readouts where they might not have a facility in their home country to do so.
1: Right. Um, So so we
3: we see them quite quite often, and uh, as you can imagine, they are bare.
1: Yeah. So how how much more difficult is the process when we're talking about magnetic tape versus digital? Because there's definitely a whole host of other considerations and issues.
3: Yeah. The worst scenario I can imagine is that the tape is damaged itself and then it becomes a giant, you know, loom of hairball of eight-track magnetic tape that has to be, you know, organized and converted. So um, it can can be a real mess. Uh, That said, one in pristine condition, not too nightmarish to deal with, but certainly time consuming. So I'll just let's tag along real quick. Oftentimes you see a photo of a lab and, and people have commented on our Twitter. We have what's called a NAGRA T, which is a device specially made to read out. It's a real to real player. And not too many NAGRA Ts are in existence. I think we own most, all of them left in the world. <laughs> so parts for the readout of these devices is becoming a challenge. So
0: I was going to kind of take a step back, and and, I mean, at the top of the interview, we we mentioned that you're a mechanical engineer, but then you're also working with the recording, you know, kind of the the recording equipment or or the the actual, you know, investigation of listening to these things. So, how much of your job is problem solving, you know? the memory units and saying, okay, I need to put on my, you know, my mechanical engineer hat, or I need to talk to my electrical engineer colleague to figure this out versus understanding what happened to the aircraft. How does that break down?
3: Yeah. I'll start by saying in the lab, we're strictly factual. So we're dealing with basically getting the data off the unit, validating the data as true data, and then presenting it in a way that's helpful to investigators. So I think maybe people think that I'm not solely investigating the aircraft accident. I'm one part of the NTSB, and my job is to be precise with factual data and ensure its validity for use and you know in further studies. So I'll start there. But what you said, I think there is no manual for this job, as you can imagine. There's no uh how do you download this kind of damaged black box? The manufacturers you know do provide some help, but a lot of it's based off our previous experience and other investigation boards around the world, their experience. So um That's, you know, within the lab, I'm a mechanical engineer. Uh, As it applies to tape recorders, you can certainly dig into uh, the mechanical investigations of what went wrong with that widget, which is quite interesting. But the lab itself were made up of uh, four mechanical engineers, three aero engineers, uh, four electrical engineers and one computer scientist. So we have people with different uh, niche areas of specialty. And certainly I'll cross reference with them or we'll be working together over each other's shoulders to you know, kind of ensure that a best practice is happening.
1: Let's talk a bit about the the actual process of listening to the recorder. Let's imagine it came to the lab in perfect condition or it was repaired. First off, who's listening to it and what are you listening for?
3: Sure. So I'll start with, you know, I'll just go through our workflow here. I think the first thing you ought to know is there's, there's really no guarantee to me as a specialist having done over 500 investigations that the event was even recorded to begin with. Typically, flight recorders are somewhat of an afterthought uh, as you go up the chain in regulations. So a part 121 operator, if I see there's a part 121 accident, I can be pretty confident that the operator had a working recorder uh, due to the federal regulations. But as we start to go down the chain, 135, 91, not that they're particularly less safe, but they don't have regulations in place as much so as 121 does to ensure the recorder works. So just figuring out if the accident's on there is step one. So I get this thing all you know repaired, plug it in. As the specialists in the lab, uh, we are we we have the responsibility of being the first first to hear it. And I think quite opposite of what you might see is what we're doing is I'm just trying to see if the event was captured. Really not interested in trying to figure out what happened in that in that first playback, but just. Did we capture the accident? Can we use this and I, I just want i just want to yeah.
0: s- take take one second to to kind of not clarify but but explain the difference between one twenty one ninety one and one thirty five so one twenty one we're talking about for everyone who doesn't know commercial aviation you know what we think of you know airlines going online buying a ticket flying to go see your grandma those, those types of airlines ninety one we're talking about more general aviation uh and and one thirty five we're talking about uh, charter and, and on demand aviation, so you know different different regulations govern different types of flying. Is, is kind of the the most general overview I can give. Uh, sure.
3: Give, and give and whether audience. or not I'll, I'll interject here and say, and whether or not the aircraft needs to be outfitted with a CVR or FDR to begin with. So yeah, sorry, I'm I'm getting kind of M- the making
0: you. Making your job all all the you know much more difficult, which we we will save for the second half of our conversation. So you you've got the recorder and and you're you're listening to it and and what are we listening for?
3: Sure. So let's assume the event is captured, which I said is not always guaranteed. Well, then you know we will bring in immediately the director of aviation safety, the top person. And the director of research and engineering, uh, my my boss's boss, and we do what's called a CVR audition. So once I ensure that the the event was captured on the CVR, they'll they'll, they'll be making their way to the laboratory. At that point, I'm preparing it for an audition. So I may be using digital filters or analog filters to try to get the recording to sound as good as possible. It's not the final pass at trying to get it as good as possible, but something good enough to present to the office directors office directors will come in and then we'll listen to the entire recording. So the uh, two directors, the director of aviation safety, director of research engineering, and in this case, i will use myself as a specialist, whoever else is assigned, and we'll just go through and, and play that recording. The directors have a few, few jobs during that initial audition. And one of it is you know simply determine is this what we call protected content? So we have a, a reg in the US, uh, 49 USC 1114C that restricts how we can use electronic information recorded on a flight deck. In general, a CVR audio is protected under that statute. So the first call they make is, was this CVR is protected under the statute or this widget that recorded this device produces a electronic file similar to the CVR that's also protected. So they'll make that determination and that kind of flows with how we will then disseminate the information. Once that happens, we'll go through, they, they will jot down notes on uh, color piece, color-coded piece, color pieces of paper that are used in the ntsb CBR lab, and that's so we can keep track of the notes and see if they ever leave the room. We will then brief the investigator in charge on the GO team on scene. So ideally, this happens all pretty quickly, and they're still on scene. We might, as I said, we're not, you know, quote unquote, figuring it out right then, but we're, we're looking for what's interesting. We'll use maybe an aborted takeoff, for example, if there's an aborted takeoff and the flight crew mentions a problem with engine number one, we might brief the GO team on seeing the investigator in charge and say, there were some comments related to a thrust reverser on engine one or uh, left landing gear status, what, what, whatever it is. So that will, you know, while the GO team is on scene and they're working with what we call perishable information, they will then have somewhat of a a guidance towards, okay, what parts might be more interesting to spend time finding at that present moment than, you know, other parts.
0: Are you, at the same time you're auditioning the CVR, do you have, if it's available, do you have the flight data recorder up and and synced?
3: So, yeah, actually, it's, what's interesting is at that point when we've ensured the CVR and FDR have been downloaded, or I let's say I'm looking at the CVR in this case, I'm sure it's captured, we'll segregate ourselves, actually. So another specialist will be assigned the FDR. And uh, if I'm working the CVR, we're typically not going to compare notes till a while down the road. And what we're trying to do there is, is look at the audio and the data in the most unbiased way possible. So I, I think that's a little-known fact. It's, it's not something we advertise too often, but in order to get you know, kind of a clean you know, tabula rasa cut on your impression of the CVR audio or the data, you, you might not want to be polluted by you know, some, other, some other source. And in, keep in mind, too, that the flight crew on a CVR, they might be confused as well and saying things that may or may not relate to the direct cause of the accident. So you can see here how that kind of dance. It evolves, and, and and that's pretty much how we do it. But ideally, yeah, the FDR is is being worked on in a, in another room in a segregated way. Yes.
0: So while we're talking about the CVR, what microphones are there? It, we'll just stay with you know commercial aviation for for the moment because that's generally what we focus on. What's being recorded?
3: Sure, I can get well into the weeds in this, but in general, you're going to have four channels of audio. You're going to have a hot mic for the captain and a hot mic for the first officer. So that's different from them having to key the mic or what you might hear through an audio panel on an aircraft where they have to meet a, a vox threshold. You are getting recorded directly from their boom mic onto the recorder. The third position would be the jump seat if it's occupied. Usually it's, it's not uh, what used to be the flight engineer. It's, it's typically a headset that's plugged in that, that might or might not be recording information if there's no one in that seat. And then the fourth thing is the uh, cockpit area mic, which is a standalone microphone, typically in the head, headlining of, of the aircraft and of, of the cockpit. And that's recording all sounds, uh, including the voices of the pilot that, that make it into the microphone, as well as any clicks, ambient engine noise, gear noise,
1: etc. Generally speaking how how good or bad is that data is that audio quality
3: Sure so in digital recorders I usually I'll call the audio good and that sounds kind of like a bad answer the word good but if you look on any CVR report at the end of the report there's actually a rating scale excellent good I think acceptable and poor or poor and unusable In general the recording of it from a digital recorder is is good it's certainly better than a magnetic tape but I think in often cases it leaves something to be desired. It's it's not like the audio we're putting forth on this podcast by any means. The definition of good in this case could mean that I can make out words without having to do extensive digital filtering. So I gave you possibly the most sciencey answer to that. Uh, but basically, it's it goes off. Okay, how many words of what the pilot just said can I actually make out? And typically, we're seeing you know above ninety percent for a digital digital recorder
0: does the amount of time recorded or, or the amount of, of noise kind of extraneous noise picked up, how do you get that balance right? I mean, when you're dealing with, you know, four channels of audio, what are you trying to do? Is it, is it clarity of the voices? Are you trying to isolate the background noise to see, you know, kind of what, what yeah, so
3: I'll kind of go two directions with the CVR. Is one, you're obviously trying to make out what the pilots what the pilots are saying, and the type of filters you're using there could be totally different than the type of filters you might use to bring out an ambient noise. So, one, we're trying to factually, you know, represent what was said in the cockpit, and that's that's you know, kind of one route looking at the CVR. On the other side of things, we could be looking at what we call the sound spectrum. So we're looking at sound energy recorded from that cockpit area mic, or maybe through the boom mics too. But things that could lead us to inferences that maybe are parameters that aren't recorded on the FDR. In some business jets, for example, you know FDRs you know don't exist. So we might be looking at engine speeds based on you know the whine of the engines in that sound spectrum. So bringing out those. I'll say cockpit environment noises is, 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 a, is kind of a separate workflow. And in the end, you know, as we're transcribing this, we, we will come back and marry them together. But I like to call myself, you know, a mixing board jockey when I'm when I'm in the lab. I've got six channels, uh, more than four. I'll say for the context of four channels, I'm constantly jockeying to kind of get the best mix as we're playing it back. And of course, we have all these other digital tricks, too. But basically, you know, audio is—it's is, more than just words. It's—it's it's sound energy, and what we're trying to do is answer a lot of questions that might not be easily answered from the FDR or other source of data with that audio.
0: So, how many passes do you usually make through the CVR?
3: Sure. Again, dependent a lot on the uh, recording. So, let's say, say it's pretty good. I should say the transcript, which is driven by the fact of um, the data being protected under 49 USC 1114C, we're not allowed to release that audio, as you probably know by now. And that's what drives the generation of the transcript. So, our main goal is to factually transcribe those words accurately. And uh, how we do that is we'll bring in through the party system, so accredited represent- representatives to the investigation. Uh, belonging maybe the engine manufacturer, the airframe manufacturer, the pilots' union, and whoever else might be directly involved and have some technical expertise to offer to the transcription group, we'll hold hold what we call a transcription group. That process to get at answering your question, that process for a thirty-minute recording typically can take about a week, where we're really trying to you know edit accurately and factually. When I hold groups or when other specials, the best practice really is once you've got it all down after the, that week-long practice is you go back and you listen to it all the way through and you read you read what you wrote. And because of the way the mind works with audio and brain interpreting it, sometimes you'll be able to pick up on stuff that you you haven't heard previously. So there's a bit of a psychological factor in doing this where time actually helps get a more accurate, accurate product, but it can take a while. For other investigations, I, I did ship sinking called the ALFARA, which is, I know, marine, not aviation. But I, I spent about a month transcribing that that recording with with the group.
0: Wow having having Again, transcribed interviews really no. Uh, I, I'm not going to give you a short answer, so maybe I'm not yeah, gonna, No, I'm, but I'm just saying. I'm just <laughs> thinking to myself. I'm <laughs> like
3: having transcribed interviews before. Sure. So I think maybe the next question to ask is, can you automate it? And we all know, you know, Siri and Google and you can speak to your phone and transcribe to text. So that that technology exists, but there's there's some problems with us using it. And number 1, the obvious problem is those those software capabilities typically require the data to hit a server online, which is not something we do. Not something we want to put this protected information on. Number 2 is, I think more interestingly, we don't want the computer to bias the interpretation of the audio. So, so most of these uh, speech to text algorithms are trained on normal conversation, not particularly aviation speak, right? So we don't want to have it hit a first pass with the computer and put down some words and then look at those words and then assign it to audio in our own mind. So I think that's why we're going to stick with this being a human
1: process and it taking some time is, valuable in the in the factual scheme of things so for now the answer is it's a manual very manual process and it takes however long it takes sure yes ex- exactly so you, i mean
3: when what, what, i read the media too and you can be assured that when an investigation going on that the priority is getting the words off that recording factually we're not wasting our time there the boots have hit the ground we're, we're running from from the get-go and we want to ensure that process is factual and accurate as you said, Jason, it it may be an unsatisfying answer, but in certain cases, it's going to take however long it's going to take. What would help us is, you know, better, better quality recordings, but that's a different issue.
0: That was NTSB investigator Sean Payne in part one of our two part interview. In the second part of our conversation, which you can find in episode 111, Sean details what's on the NTSB's wish list to make flying even safer. Our final conversation for the year. Is our chat with Malcolm Ridley, the chief test pilot at Airbus. Ridley shares how he became a test pilot and a few of the stories from his years putting new Airbus aircraft through their paces. We are joined this week as promised and kind of previewed over the past couple of weeks because I've been so excited about this conversation. We are joined by Airbus's chief test pilot, Malcolm Ridley. He's here to talk to us about being a test pilot and then some of the things that he has worked on in the past and is working on in the present and possibly in the future. Malcolm Ridley, thank you so much for joining us. It is a pleasure to have you on the show.
4: No, Ian, the pleasure is all mine. Thanks very much for the opportunity. It was great to see you guys at the Airbus Summit recently, and uh, it's a great pleasure to join you again. Yeah, thanks
1: for coming on, Malcolm. When uh, Ian was out in, I believe it was Toulouse, he could not stop talking about how enjoyable it was talking with you. I was kind of insulted that I don't get that kind of problem, but (laughs) I'm very excited to speak with you and hear about your experiences as the Airbus chief test pilot. So I guess
0: the first question that we have is, How do you become a test pilot, let alone the chief test pilot? That's a great question.
4: It is a great question. And uh, the truthful answer is there's a lot of luck involved in being in the right place at the right time, guys. Honestly, the most well-trodden path to uh, test flying, particularly until the modern era, has been through the military. And that indeed was my path. I started my career as a pilot with the Royal Air Force in the U.K., And I was lucky enough to get the opportunity to train there as a test pilot before continuing to work in the military as a flight test pilot, largely on heavy aircraft and later as an instructor. And that often is the main route into experimental test flying. As time's moved on, there's more opportunities now to do it in different ways. There are a number of commercial test pilot schools out there on the market that are offering uh, appropriate courses. So the world is opening up.
1: What kind of aircraft did you fly before your time with Airbus and the military side of aviation?
4: My career was in maritime patrol aviation. I flew the Nimrod uh, maritime patrol aircraft in the Royal Air Force. And then I was extremely fortunate to spend three years on an exchange posting with the Royal Australian Air Force flying the Lockheed P-3 Orion. Nice. (laughs) Yes. So what you mentioned that previously
0: the military was the path to becoming a test pilot, but now that there are kind of commercial test pilot schools, what is the some of the I assume there are many differences? What are some of the differences between just being a pilot and being a test pilot?
4: That's a great question. And. The first prerequisite really for test flying is to be an experienced pilot, either in the military or commercial environments. Because the whole point of test flying is to develop aircraft that will work well in the hands of the user. And unless you've been the user in the role that you are proposed to fly the airplane, you really can't comment on how it should be designed and how it should work. So the first prerequisite is a good amount of experience on those classes of aircraft that you're going to test. But then really the main difference is that we're testing the machine, you know, in the hands of a commercial pilot or a military pilot in service, the airplane has to do a job. But first and foremost, it's a machine. So we have to make sure that that machine is both safe, efficient and effective to fly that it's well designed, that it operates correctly, and it meets the requirements of the, of the certification agencies and the end user. And part of that, of course, is employing our experience to understand how it will be used in service. So our job is really operating the machine, testing the machine, but then also projecting ahead as to how that machine will work in service and how it will be used. So that's really interesting you're like the beta tester the alpha tester of
1: the aircraft and, and i'm really interested to hear how do you really interpret what you're experiencing what you're seeing what you're feeling to the engineers or the other teams at airbus when, when you're flying a new aircraft how do you really communicate what you're experiencing into something that's actually actionable another
4: really great uh, question jason a significant part of uh, test pilot training, wherever you do that training, a significant part of it is communication. It is how to communicate uh, technically, logically, in a data-based way that really explains what you see and what you observe in the air in a way that's uh, both engineering literate in terms of being able to fix the problem but it's also user literate in terms of what will this mean to a pilot using the aircraft in service. So uh, it actually starts before the flights because a lot of the stuff we do, particularly in terms of design and development, is done in simulators before we even get in the airplane. We then fly the airplanes to confirm or uh, improve on our understanding that we see in the simulator. And even during the flights, we're able to communicate because for the majority here at Airbus of our uh, experimental engineering test flights were followed by telemetry. So in real time, we've got guys on the ground, our design experts, our engineering experts are effectively with us in the airplane, listening to what we have to say, observing what we're doing. Then after the flight, we'll have a comprehensive debrief where we'll sit down with those guys uh, and we'll again go through what we've seen, draw our conclusions, make our recommendations. And then this of course is followed up by documentary work as well, where we will uh, write reports with our flight test engineers to document our findings and put them in context.
0: When you're working on a new aircraft or a new system on an existing aircraft, you said you start with documentation and then you move into the simulator. Are there... Ever any times when you get to the point where you say, before you've even flown the aircraft, where you're like, oh, we don't think this is going to work, so let's go, let's take a step back before. Or perhaps when you're surprised by something positively, you're like, I don't know if that's going to work. And then sure enough, it all works the way that, that it was designed to where you've been kind of surprised either way.
4: Indeed, yes, (laughs) is the short answer. (laughs) You know, the whole purpose of flight tests in a way, if if you want to look at it this way, is to reduce surprises. We don't want any surprises at all when the aircraft is in service. We want to take the surprises on the chin in the flight test and development world. So, yeah, we do certainly find things the development simulators that we don't think will work well in the air. And we find things that in the air that perhaps the simulator model didn't correctly predict or indeed that are actually better than we expected, as you've said. So, yes, absolutely. Modeling gets better and better. But for the moment, there's no replacement for, uh, for actual flight tests and actually flying the airplanes. Besides
0: doing the actual flight testing and flying the aircraft, flying simulators and things like that, what else is a test pilot and you as chief test pilot for Airbus, what else are you working on besides just flying the aircraft?
4: Okay, so at any stage of a program, we're also providing operational input into our design offices. We work closely with flight standards and training guys as well. There's another group of pilots within Airbus who look after training policy, uh, training design. They also provide the procedures that uh, flight crews will use in service. We work very closely with those guys to develop together those procedures and processes. Another very, very important part of what we do is of course safety. And uh, my previous job before being the chief test pilot was to be responsible for the safety management system here in our flight test and integration center. So we always, always, always put safety first in terms of what we do within the company, but also in terms of our products in service. So everything we do has that safety vein running through it to make sure that uh, that we're doing the right thing. So before any significant flight test campaign or development phase, we will sit down, we'll go through the safety aspects of this. We'll try to predict the, uh, the hazards and risks and, and mitigate them as appropriate. And then we qualify the risk of what we're about to do in terms of its acceptability. And management of risk is always a balance of of the uh, potential adverse outcome versus the reward. And in flight test, it's particularly sharp. We really need to make sure that we're getting that balance right. So that's a key part of what any flight test uh, flight crew is going to be involved in in their job. So definitely a lot going on at
1: any given moment. And I want to take a little look into your past at Airbus and ask, what have you worked on at Airbus in the past during your time there? Like aircraft in general, have you, what aircraft, new aircraft being flight tested have you worked on specifically? I'm guessing it works that you jump on a project from the beginning and you see it vary all the way through to the end when the aircraft is delivered and in service, or is there more flight testing that goes on beyond the delivery?
4: So the way we organize is that for particular programs, we will put pilots and engineers onto that program as a specialization. So you're absolutely right, Jason, they will follow through that, that program uh, from beginning to end as far as possible. But we also all do a bit of everything. So here at Airbus, we have the philosophy that uh, our flight test pilots will cover the full range of our programs, all of our aircraft types and the kinds of flying that we do, both the development and experimental flying, but also the production flight testing and uh, customer acceptance flights that we do as the customers collect their aircraft. We think it's very important that pilots remain familiar with all of those areas, keep contact with our customers, but also work at the, if you like, the cutting edge of, of the development work that we're doing. So, yes, I've done a range of things in uh, the 10 years I've been with the company, and I've got to say they've been the 10 most fulfilling years of my career so far <laughs> by a long way. <laughs> so, I've worked on uh, on all the major programs, including uh, the military A400M at various times. I can remember some notable moments in that program being high-altitude parachute testing from depressurized oh, wow. aircraft at high-altitude. I also claim the record for perhaps the highest ever opening of the direct vision sliding window in the A four hundred M, which is I think was twenty two thousand feet. A little windy, um, the, the, probably. It uh, <laughs> yeah, was well, surprisingly not actually, but uh, yeah, that's a program highlight for me: flying with the windows open at twenty-two thousand feet.
1: So it definitely um, sounds like the A four hundred M is probably your favorite test program so
4: far. It's certainly up there, and the A four hundred M is a wonderful machine. It's a wonderful machine to fly. It's a stupendous achievement. Have you actually been on the the first flight of any of
1: these new aircraft at Airbus?
4: Yes. Another memorable day for me was being one of the pilots on the first flight of the A319neo with the CFM engine. And indeed, also the very first flight of the A330-800 three years ago or so. It's a real privilege because as a test flight crew, and I include my, of course, my colleagues, the flight test engineers and test flight engineers with whom we fly, It's a huge privilege to take part in an occasion like that because we are just the tip of the iceberg on a day like that. The number for thousands, actually, of people, both within Airbus and our suppliers, who have put their hearts and souls into getting that airplane to the point of first flight is quite humbling. We feel very privileged to be the people who are standing there accepting the applause at the end of the day, but actually, you know, we're doing so on behalf of a huge team. And this is one of the things that I think we all truly value in this industry. And it's particularly noticeable in flight test is this wonderful feeling of teamwork that we have in the company. These areas of expertise that all have to fit together perfectly, like a a fantastic jigsaw puzzle to bring these things to fruition. And they always do we always do it, and to see that crowd of faces, the happiness and the pride on those faces is awe-inspiring, to be honest. It's fantastic. So those those you occasions stay with me.
0: You mentioned teamwork, and I want to touch on that for a minute, because I would like an explanation about the difference between a flight test engineer and
4: a test flight engineer. Right. And I knew you were <laughs> So, as you well know, let's start in the cockpit. Our aircraft are designed to be operated by two pilots, okay? But they have a third seat in the cockpit for observer status or for a a third pilot who's, who's traveling on the aircraft. In fact, in flight tests, the workload can be significantly higher than it is in a service aircraft, as you can imagine. Some of the tests we do are very intense in terms of workload and demand on the flight crew. And indeed, even on occasion, both pilots can be fully occupied actually piloting the aircraft. There are tests where one pilot is solely concentrating in roll, and another pilot in pitch, for example. Or indeed, the flight control system of the airplane has been deliberately degraded so that we can test failure modes. In which case, the piloting task itself can be very demanding. So it is extremely important, in fact, it is vital to have a third person in the cockpit to assist Let's take, to give you an example, let's take the example of an engine relight test. So this is something we will need to do with a new or modified engine, or indeed during the development of a new aircraft, is to establish the envelope, as we call it, through which an engine might be restarted in flight if it has been shut down. And this will take the form of a maximum altitude limit and a speed or mark number range in which we can get that engine running again. So to test that, we will have to set up the airplane very precisely at the test point required in terms of speed and altitude. And that will require the full resources very often of both pilots to manage the energy to get to the airplane to that correct point. So it's very helpful in this case to have a third person who can concentrate purely on the actual engine itself, can shut it down, and then can commence the restart and monitor very closely the parameters of the engine as it's restarting and take action quickly if there's any problem. So that's to me a perfect example of why we need three people in the cockpit. And the third guy is a test flight engineer. So they're highly skilled, qualified guys who follow each of our development prototype by tail number through its life, and they get to know extremely well the limitations of that particular prototype, its engineering history. They liaise directly for us with the ground engineering teams to have the aircraft prepared in exactly the way, the configuration, weight and balance, et cetera, that we need for a particular test flight. So that's the test flight engineer who will be with us in the cockpit. And then the flight test engineer. Now, these are the guys and girls who uh, will work at the flight test engineer station in the rear cabin of our prototypes. And they are the guys and girls who will follow through the program, who will put together the test flight profiles who will work with us to consider the safety of the test, who will plan each individual flight and each test campaign to get the maximum efficiency out of the uh, the test program. And then in flight, they will direct the testing. So one of the pilots will be the captain of the aircraft, but the lead flight test engineer for that flight will manage the flight. They will guide us to the test points and they will take us through, if you like, as test directors. And then they get to write the majority of the reporting and hard work after the flight as well, which is great great for us pilots, but uh, less so for them. But they're fantastic experts. They're real assets to the company. And no flight test department could function without highly competent and skilled flight test engineers, test flight engineers, and indeed test pilots. When we were in Toulouse last month,
0: I had the good fortune to tour the A350-1000 test aircraft, right? and I noticed something on the flight deck in the center console that was the escape system, flight test emergency evacuation system. And I was speaking with the, I want to get this right, the lead flight test engineer, he said that had been deactivated, but was used for early flights. Can you explain what that is? And I'll post a picture for everyone listening. I'll post a picture of this in the show notes so you can see the, the switch that we're talking about.
4: Right. I can tell you what it is and how it works, but I'm happy to tell you that I've got no personal experience of using it. That was going uh, to be, uh, the, that, that, uh, I think
0: we, we probably would have known <laughs> if that had happened. <laughs>
4: So uh, during the very early flights, particularly the critical flights of the flight test program of a brand new aircraft, for the first prototype, maybe I should rewind just a moment and explain our, our philosophy with the prototypes. Because for a major campaign such as A350 certification, we will have a number of prototypes. And for the A350, we had five. So we had two aircraft that I would describe as heavy prototypes with uh, the full range of flight test instrumentation, such as you saw Ian at Toulouse, which is essentially the interior of the aircraft. There's no cabin. The interior of the aircraft is largely computer racks, water ballast systems, computers and recording devices and the stations for the flight test engineers. So it's very workmanlike. And then we will have two prototypes in this case that have a representative cabin fitted because we need to test the cabins. We need to measure vibration, noise, air temperature, etc. Now, of those heavy prototypes, One of them will be dedicated particularly to tests such as envelope expansion, the early progression of the aircraft to high speed, high altitude, high Mach number, and indeed high angle of attack, where we first start to take the airplane up to the stall. And it will also be involved in tests such as flutter, where we deliberately try to excite vibrations within the aircraft, particularly in the high-speed regime, to ensure that those vibrations will never become self-sustaining or divergent, as we would call it, so that the structure of the aircraft is at risk. So clearly, we have to go there and do this to ensure that the airplanes are safe uh, before certification and they can, they meet certification requirements. But we have to accept a certain amount of risk in doing so. So for those prototypes, we will typically install a means of escaping from the aircraft in flight. And this largely covers the case where we manage to damage the aircraft to an extent where the landing would be in doubt and the safest option for the crew would be to jump out. So what we do is we will put, a, typically in our airliners, we will put a hatch, which is within the forward cargo door of the production aircraft. And we'll put a tunnel that comes down from the the cabin floor down effectively through what is going to be the forward cargo in the production aircraft uh, down to this hatch in the forward cargo door. And once the system is armed, if it's needed to be used in flight, then basically it's a single action on a lever to uh, Uh, depressurize the airplane rapidly, and then using pyrotechnic explosives, we remove that outer hatch, leaving an escape path for the crew to leave the aircraft by parachute. Clearly, that's for a particularly sharp edge test, as I might call them, the, the particularly high risk ones. Once we're through that stage of the program, then honestly, there is uh, the requirement is no longer there to have that emergency escape uh, in flight capability. So typically, we disable it and remove it because we don't want to fly around in aircraft that are carrying explosive hatches. Yeah, probably, really to, probably yeah. a good <laughs> idea.
1: Good to have, but never good to use.
0: Absolutely. So we touched on this briefly in a conversation last month, and and I wanted to kind of draw a little bit more out because I thought this was fascinating. We were talking at the Airbus Summit. A lot of the conversation was about what's next, electric propulsion, hydrogen, and things like that. And I made an offhanded comment that something to the effect that you'll be busy soon. And you said, no, I'm busy now. And the comment that you made was, well, we have to design what the aircraft is going to look like as far as pilots are concerned. And I was hoping that you could expand on that and talk about some of the things that your work involves in getting the next generation of aircraft.
4: Gosh, well, the next generation of aircraft, there are various aspects to what could be the next generation of aircraft, ranging as you've suggested from the Airbus Summit. You know, we're looking at a range of possible propulsion systems for the next generation of aircraft. We are also continuously developing air traffic management technology with the air traffic management service providers. We're always looking at new ways of presenting information in cockpits, flight guidance, automation capabilities. We're always looking to move forward and the point where those come together to make the next generation of aircraft is not so far away, you know? We're always moving forward here in Airbus. We see ourselves as innovators. We've got a track record of that in the industry with our fly by wire systems and, and flight envelope protection. So we're always looking for what's next. And that was the basis of my comment. So yeah, in particular, You'll have seen that we've just been developing new technologies for automatic uh, control and guidance of our aircraft to give much more flexibility to pilots in the future. The specific example I would mention would be the Atoll project. Last year, we completed the Atoll project, which is the automated taxi takeoff and landing Demonstration using the A350. We use the A350, but it's it's purely uh, an example. It could be used on, on any of our aircraft in the future. But this allowed us using visual recognition means, visual sensors, to provide a completely automatic taxi, takeoff, flight and automatic landing using visual sensors. The advantage of this is we're not dependent for automatic landing on ILS or um, ground-based GPS. We are entirely self-contained with the aircraft and that opens up the whole flexibility of doing auto lands at much less developed airports around the world. In fact, any airport would potentially be possible in the future. That's just one example of the way we're always pushing technology forward. So that's a technology that is nowhere near ready to go into a commercial aircraft yet, but could potentially be in the next generation.
0: We have one more question for you, and it's a question that we, we try and ask everyone that we talk to. What is your favorite part of the job?
4: It has to be the flying, Ian. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, that, that's uh, the only uh, uh, right? yeah. It has to be the flying. I feel extremely privileged, and I'm sure there are many pilots who will be listening to this. All I can say to them is I understand how lucky I am. Every flight I make here is interesting in one way or another. Either it's because we're, we're testing something new, we're developing one of our existing products to make it even better, but whatever I do, it's always pushing, pushing, pushing a little bit further with the technology and the capabilities of our aircraft, and I find that fascinating. It's demanding in terms of the skill I have, and that's always, I think, to any professional, anybody likes to have their skill challenged and pushed and, and to be doing the best they can. But another real pleasure I get from it, of course, is flying with our customers. And our customers come here to collect their lovely new aircraft, and I have the privilege of flying with them from time to time to uh, to ensure they're happy with each aircraft as it's, as it's collected. And that's a real pleasure as well. So uh, it's the flying. I love the teamwork. I've got a fantastic team of colleagues here, both in, uh, here in Toulouse, but also my colleagues and friends in, in Hamburg, in Germany, in Mobile, Alabama, and in Tianjin in China, our four uh, flight tester locations. It's a fantastic team, and I have pleasure every day in, in working with those guys. I learn something every day. But the pleasure, it's the flying.
0: <laughs> awesome and on that note we will say thank you very much for <laughs> joining us we have been regaled in conversation by Malcolm Ridley the chief test pilot for, for Airbus commercial aircraft thank you so much again for joining us I'm very very pleased that we were able to sit down and
4: talk Ian Jason it's been a pleasure thanks very much for the opportunity I, I could talk thank all day man. as you probably guessed
0: <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to have you back on another episode then <laughs> with pleasure Thank you everyone so very much for listening this year. On behalf of Jason and me and everyone at Flight Radar 24, we hope you're enjoying the podcast and we're very grateful for all of your support. I would be remiss if I did not beg once more for you to leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. You can also send us feedback of any kind, comments, questions, suggestions, to podcast at fr24.com. That's it for the episode, and that is it for the year. I am Ian Pechnik. Thank you so very much for listening, and have a happy new year.